I had a lot of other title options for this podcast series, Exposing Move, The Cult of John Africa, which would have been better titles for this series, considering that we are investigating the Move organization. But I couldn't use any of those good titles, because prior to launching a new podcast, you must upload at least a trailer for review by Apple Podcasts. That could take a couple weeks or more, and then it's live, and it can be found. The podcast had to be approved and live before Pixie Africa was going to escape, So that's why I chose the title Murder at Ryan's Run, so that we could be under the radar. And in this episode, I'm taking you to Ryan's Run, the scene of the horrific 2002 murder of former MOVE member John Gilbride. When Bob and I first start researching the murder of John in the fall of 2019, we start with public reporting in the major newspapers, the Courier-Post, Philadelphia Daily News, and the Philadelphia Inquirer. This is where we find statements from law enforcement, specifically the Burlington County prosecutor at the time, Robert Bernardi, who held a press conference at 1 p.m. on September 27th. Bernardi told reporters the following. Mapleshade, New Jersey police are called to Ryan's Run from a 911 caller complaining about a car running for 30 minutes. The call comes in shortly before midnight on the 26th. When officers arrive, they discover a two-door 1985 black Ford Crown Victoria with the engine running and the gear in neutral. The lights and windshield wipers are on, the music is blaring, and the driver's side window is shattered. Inside is 34-year-old John Gilbride, still buckled into his seatbelt. He has been shot in the chest and head, and he is dead. Amongst the shattered glass are numerous shell casings, indicating an automatic weapon. The right passenger door has a hole made by an exiting bullet. In the summer of 2020, with COVID hindering my plans to travel back to Philly, Bob and I decide we must take a trip out to the crime scene. Bob will be there in person, and I will be virtual, literally on his phone, in his front pocket. It is Wednesday, June 10th, 8.15 in the morning. While simultaneously being on my computer on Google Maps. I can see the apartment building perfectly. Uh, I'm trying to think right off the top of my head what's the quickest way to go. How far to Maple Shade? Like 10 minutes? Um, maybe 15, 10. Bob lives in West Philly, and like most people, he finds it easier to just use public transportation. So he doesn't drive a lot and almost never drives over the Ben Franklin Bridge to New Jersey. So it's not long before Bob is totally lost. Oh, shit. I might have made a slightly wrong turn. Okay. I'm helping him navigate using Google Maps. Okay. So I need to turn around again? Yeah. Okay. I'm turning now. So on your left-hand side, you'll see Thomas Paine Elementary School. Really? Yep. That's fantastic. Thomas Paine is known to most of us by the quote, these are the times that try men's souls. But to anarchists like Bob, Thomas Paine's writings and call for revolution against British rule in 1776, and then against organized religion in the early 1800s, these were the first sparks of American anarchism. So Bob's totally geeking out about Thomas Paine, not about being back on course for our destination. Well, I have to take a picture of that. Please don't while you're driving. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so remember, it's going to come up really quickly. I'm turning right into the entrance. Does there is there like a big sign or what does it look like? There's a sign. It's not real big, but it's big enough. Bob is turning into the driveway of the tucked away, self-contained apartment community built in 1972. Ryan's Run West. There are 200 units spread out over 14 two-story buildings. The buildings are situated on the interior of a U-shaped drive. 
that begins and ends at the entrance to the property. You're going to look, you're looking for building 300. The facade of the apartment buildings are a mixture of wood siding and brick. The entrances for each building are open archways with a single light overhead. The grounds of the property have large grassy areas with walking paths, and the entire property is surrounded by 30-foot trees, which make you forget that there's a highway right next to Ryan's Run because it's so quiet. That fateful night, September 26, 2002, was a rainy Thursday, and after a long shift as a baggage supervisor at U.S. Air at the Philadelphia International Airport, John makes a phone call to his parents' home. And he always called to talk to them on his way home. My parents typically talked to him till he got into his apartment door and shut the door. And why was that? That night, just for his safety, I picked up the phone and I said, mom and dad are sleeping. Typically, he would get off around 11 o'clock. But this time, he told me, I'm leaving early tonight. I said, okay, do you want me to wake them up? He said, no, I'll talk to you. So he wasn't driving when he was talking to you? No, he wasn't. In fact, because um said that that night they walked to the cars together. Because earlier in the day, he had gotten new tires and new brakes on him. And he felt like he was being watched that day. Who would have been watching John Gilbride get new tires put on that day? Then that evening... He moved his car a couple times in the garage or something and either walked with him to the car or he drove him to where his car was in the garage. Employee parking at the Philadelphia International Airport is off-site, so it's not a convenient thing to go move your car on brakes. So we were talking and he was telling me about he was going to be going to court. We happened to have the same court date because I was going to court with my older, my older son father for child support that same day. Both Alicia and John are scheduled to go to different family courts on the same day the following week. Alicia for child support and John for his court-ordered unsupervised visitation with his six-year-old son, Zachary, that had been obstructed by his ex-wife, Alberta Africa, who you now know as the leader of MOVE. And then he said, all right, well, I got to go and finish up whatever he does to leave work. And then we said, okay, goodbye, I love you. And then we hung up. Bob is now out of his car and looking around. What do you see in front of building three? Across the street from the building is like an embankment that's all it's for trees and grass. And there's a row of parallel parking spots. Oh, I can see that. So there's people who are parked along the embankment and then there's cars that are parked facing the building? Yes. Okay. The embankment is covered in thick brush and trees that would provide a lot of cover that dark rainy night. And take some pictures, especially just perspective of where the car would have been, his apartment building, the access to the freeway. Because now that you're there, can you picture somebody hiding? Across from the car, yes. The location of the apartment couldn't be better for what they wanted to do. This is 23-year-old Jason Gilbride, son of Alicia and nephew of John. It's just, it was like a perfect storm, literally. It was like the hardest rain ever, and they probably had silencers on it or something. Is this location perfect to commit a murder and get away with it? The entire apartment complex is a circle. You could basically drop somebody off. They could hide in the embankment. You could then go park anywhere not be noticed, and right. then pick them up. That's correct. By the way, I, I, I climbed up the embankment. Oh, if you saw John pull up and park, how quickly could you get from the embankment to his car if you're running? How about three seconds? 
Bob and I have looked closely at the one published picture of the crime scene that shows where John was parked and shot, and it would seem likely that the 911 call complaining about his car running with the headlights on would be from the ground floor apartment. So Bob is going to see if anyone in that unit is home today. The resident is telling Bob that he didn't live there in 2002. Okay. Bob? Sorry? Does he yeah. know Does he know anybody in the complex that would have been around in 2002? It would have been a big story. Do you know anyone who was here that long? I can't think of you. Okay. Thank you very much, sir. It seems like people from 2002 have moved on from Ryan's run. So we take our neighbor search online and via phone. The night you're talking about... Um, I was actually uh, awakened by hearing, you know, the, the doorbell and knocking on the door. It was definitely pitch black outside. This is a resident of Ryan's Run Building 400, the building right next door. So as I got out of bed, you know, I could see the reflection up through the the curtains of the red and blue flashers going. So that's, you know, an in- instant the police at my door. Why? When I looked through and opened it, it was actually two men were wearing, you know, suits as opposed to uniforms. And so, you know, that they were going around the complex, you know, see, you know, just to ask people if they had heard anything, had to tell the guy honestly. I, I hadn't heard anything because I had a few months before then been diagnosed with sleep apnea and told them, you know, hey, I was hooked up to the machine to help me breathe while I'm sleeping and I did not hear a thing. Did the two men in suits, did they leave you a business card? I don't believe so. All the apartments in this guy's building, number 400, were at least 200 feet away from where John was shot. So I keep searching matches for building 300, and bingo, I get one. What ran through your mind when you first heard that I was looking to talk to anybody after all this time? Skepticism, that this could be uh, some kind of scam. (laughs) This resident from building 300 wasn't home on the night of John's murder. He was out of town on business arriving home to Ryan's Run on Friday morning, September 27th, between 7 and 7.30 a.m. So I pulled in from the left, from the main entrance. I came around. I could see many cars, police cars, news cars. And as I got up to the building here, Building 3, Terry Ruggles uh, stuck a microphone into me and told me there was an incident here. There was a murder. Terry Ruggles was a reporter for the local NBC affiliate in 2002. He asked me uh, my relationship that I know, John Gilbride, and I said, not really. He was a neighbor. I recognized his face from seeing him and just waving as a neighbor. Were you approached by any law enforcement as you pulled in? No. This is 7.30 a.m., so I'm wondering the following. Why is this resident able to drive through the area of the parking lot where John was murdered? It's only been daylight since 6.52 a.m., and there could be evidence in and around that area. Do you think it's possible that anybody could have seen anything? It's doubtful. That time of the night or early morning hours, there's not that much traffic typically uh, in the, the complex. And especially back where we were, we were toward the back of the complex. Do you think somebody would have heard something? If they were awake, yeah, because there would be, you know, four to six apartments within 50 feet of the vehicle. 
After hanging up with his neighbor, I'm still thinking about the time that he pulled in between 7 and 7.30 a.m. and that Terry Ruggles from NBC already knew that the victim is John Gilbride. I'm thinking about this because John's family has told me they were never notified by either Burlington County detectives or Maple Shade Police that John was shot and dead. It was Jack's sister listening to local morning radio that heard a man involved with MOVE has been shot. We had to go a roundabout way of finding out what really happened to him that morning, 27th morning. Made a couple of phone calls and finally got to Maple Shade Police Department where, and they told me, they confirmed. When I told my wife, she screamed, you wouldn't believe, and she just fell to the floor and cried her eyes out. At the beginning of our research into John's murder, we put in a request for the case file and the 911 call, but were denied because this is an open case. Could there be more details that were not disclosed to the public about the 911 call? I phoned the Gilbride family to see if they knew anything more. Hello? Hi, Jack. It's Beth McNamara. Hey, hello, Beth. John's sister, Alicia, is also on the call. And she says that eight months after John's murder, that she and her mom, Frances, drove up to Ryan's Run so that they could knock on doors and hand out flyers, hoping that somebody might have information about that night. There was a girl upstairs. That girl said it sounded like pots and pans, clanging, clanging. She was also the one who made the call that there was the radio blaring and the horn and the lights on. With Alicia saying a second floor resident called 911 and that they heard a car horn brings up the possibility of more than one 911 caller. And that with the horn noise, maybe somebody looked out the window. There might be a set of that they might have a better understanding than we do of a, a getaway car. Jack is hinting that police might be aware of the sighting of a getaway car that night. If this is true, with all these years of Burlington County saying they had no solid leads, a piece of information like this might bring a major break. It definitely leads the podcast team to wonder, are there other pieces of evidence that also exist in the case file? According to Jack Gilbride, it seems there is. Burlington County detectives collected cartridges from the shooting. It was a pistol. The number of shell casings found on the ground, or possibly in John's car or in his body, has never been publicly disclosed. Burlington County Prosecutor Bernardi said he believed the collected shell casings were from an automatic weapon, but Jack is saying pistols and multiple. It could be possible that the automatic weapon was a pistol-sized model. It's been so long now. Like, how would you even find that gun unless it matched in the system to another crime? Yes. And then you need witnesses. Yes. The crime scene has never been described as a robbery. And based on the location of Ryan's Run, it doesn't seem like a random shooting. Someone would have to be familiar with Ryan's Run, turn in, and then decide to drive deeper back into the complex, which is in and of itself much riskier as far as getting out quickly so as not to be caught. Which brings me back to Alicia saying that John had mentioned in their phone call that night that he had felt like he was being watched earlier that day and that he had moved his car a couple times during his work shift. Remember he stayed at the friend's house? Yes. Two days. That's another reason why how you know he was being followed. Uh, yeah, that's another he reason. he staying at a friend's house for two or three days. Was John staying at a friend's apartment for multiple nights before he was murdered 
because he was scared to come home? And if yes, why did he return home this particular night, the night he was murdered? This question, along with dozens of others we have about this case, are written down in a notebook as we hoped that we might get a chance to run them by Burlington County Prosecutor's Office. So when I get a friendly call from the current detective in early 2020, it seems like it might happen. And for eight months, we go back and forth about a Zoom meeting, an in-person meeting, or at the very least, an official statement about the case. In August 2020, all communication on their side ends abruptly. Not one to give up easily, I locate one of the original detectives on the John Gilbride case now retired. He calls me back right away saying he would be happy to speak with me, but he needs to run it by Burlington County Prosecutor Scott Kofina. Two weeks later, the retired detective calls me. Hi Beth, this is Fred Biasenis from uh, New Jersey. Just returning your calls. I listen to the voicemail and then call Bob. I heard back from the retired detective Yeah. and he did not receive permission to speak to us. Did he say why? He got an email from Kofina that said she has to talk to the public information officer, who you know has now been not returning my calls or emails. The podcast is still hoping to get an interview with anyone in the Burlington County Prosecutor's Office because we really want to know why this case is unsolved. Is it typical for a murder investigation to have no investigative leads? Has every piece of evidence been looked at and then looked at again with new technology? Has every possible witness or person with possible information been contacted and interviewed and then possibly re-interviewed? I tell you that Bob and I, without the case file or anything from authorities, that we only got this far in our own investigation due in a very large part to archive local reporting. My name is Jason Nark. I'm a reporter with the Philadelphia Inquirer. I've been here since 2008 reporting on uh, just about everything from sports to crime to rural issues. The Inquirer is the paper of record in the city. It's won multiple Pulitzers. I found Jason Nark through links to his reporting that were posted on the blog antimove.blogspot.com a blog authored by former MOVE supporter and then public defector and critic, Tony Allen. So I reached out to you. Mm -hmm. Yes. And 30 seconds later, you called me. Yeah, because I'm very interested in talking about this case. It's bugged me for a long time. What bugs you about it? It's remained unsolved. It's, It's also been kept under wraps by law enforcement ever since then. They've never really said anything to me. They said some stuff in the initial uh, investigation, but I mean, for the last 16, 15 years, they've said absolutely nothing about the case. They don't have a cold case unit. Do you think the the John Gilbride case is worth pursuing today? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think the public knows about this case that well. But the irony is that Philadelphia police were very vocal about it, about theories and motives, things that police normally don't talk about in public, um, particularly when a case is not in their jurisdiction. Uh, I think it was uh, Captain, I don't know if it's Captain Fisher, the Civil Affairs Unit was set saying that John might have had a gambling problem or it seemed like a classic mob hit. 
I went back through all the public reporting I could find on John Gilbride's murder, and I found lots of comments from Civil Affairs Captain Bill Fisher about the murder. I'm going to read directly from a Philadelphia Daily News story, Saturday, September 2002, which is just a day and a half after John's murder. Captain William Fisher, head of the Philadelphia Police Department's Civil Affairs Division, who knows the MOVE members, said he does not believe any of them were responsible for Gilbride's murder. I've been wrong before, he said, but I would just say my investigative instincts would lead me to look at his background before King Sessing Avenue. This is bizarre, to say the least, unquote. Why is Captain Fisher commenting on a case not in his jurisdiction? Could it have something to do with his close working relationship with members of MOVE? Members who knew John Gilbride during the 10 years John was living with MOVE? Six of those years as husband to Alberta, Africa? Captain Fisher is now retired, and all efforts to contact him about his public statements have been so far unsuccessful. We still hope to reach him. Okay, I'm going to go back to... Jack and Alicia Gilbride mentioning that in the days leading up to the murder, that John had been staying at a friend's instead of coming home to his apartment at Ryan's Run. This might have something to do with the events of Friday, September 20th, 2002, just six days before his murder. John and his ex-wife Alberta were both at the Cherry Hill Municipal Building in the courtroom regarding the ongoing child custody and John's unsupervised visitation orders with Zachary that were being upheld. Outside the municipal building were more than two dozen people wearing the same black t-shirt that says welcome to Philadelphia with an orange image of a helicopter. They are carrying signs, one of which says hands off move, and there is a man using a bullhorn. The two streets in front of the municipal building were blocked by Cherry Hill police cars, and all of the employees were sent home midday. I know about this event because the Courier Post ran a story about it the next day with the headline, Move Sympathizers Stage a Cherry Hill Demonstration. Cherry Hill is a small suburb, so this would have been an unusual event. So I tracked down a city official from that time to see what they might recall about that day. Okay, my name is uh, Bart Simons, and I was the mayor of Cherry Hill, New Jersey in 2002. September 20th, 2002, and I'd like to hear your recollection of that day. Uh, I was briefed by the police department that they had information that there was going to be a demonstration uh, by members uh, who were supportive of the MOVE organization, uh, the group in Philadelphia that was uh, very active and had been firebombed out of existence, and that there was going to be a demonstration in Cherry Hill. They were going to march on the township building uh, in an effort to try and avert any potential conflict. We closed the township building and sent everybody home. Do you rec- What do you recall seeing at the municipal building, if anything? Nothing. Oh, were you there that day? Yes. I have pictures of that day, which show protesters. It shows a lot of press. It shows a street closed down with a Cherry Hill police car. And it in almost... Sorry. I should clarify, uh, when I was mayor, I also had a job. So I oftentimes didn't get to the township building till about four o'clock. 
Based on the Courier Post story, the move sympathizers, demonstrators, arrive at 1.30 p.m. and leave two hours later, which would be 3.30 p.m. Were you brief after the protest efforts on the 20th? No doubt I was, but to be frank with you, I don't recall uh, any details. It was more wonderment than anything because I didn't really know what the connection was between the move organization, which was synonymous with Philadelphia, and Cherry Hill. There was some thin connection to Cherry Cherry Hill. Uh, but I don't really think at the time that I thought that this was likely to happen. And of course, you know, based on the history of the move organization, it would have been a concern. But as I said, nothing ever happened. On September 26, the father involved in the custody battle arrived at his apartment in Maple Shade and was shot dead. I have a very vague recollection of that. Uh, if, you know, if you ask, if you had asked me cold, if I remember anything like that, could I describe anything like that? I, I wouldn't have been unable to. But now that you mention it, I do kind of remembering that happening. Uh, and again, this was in Maple Shade, not Cherry Hill. So it really didn't have a direct impact on us. And as I said, nothing ever happened in Cherry Hill after that. So it's sort of like, it, you know, dissipated. Do you have any recollection after the 26th? Did anybody reach out to you or to the Cherry Hill Police Department about the murder? Certainly no one reached out to me. I don't ever remember commenting on it. I don't ever remember it affecting me. I would be very surprised if someone didn't reach out to the police department because of the connection. But I don't know that for a fact. Okay. And any any involvement with the FBI? None that I know of. Okay. The podcast put in a comprehensive public records request to Cherry Hill about the events on September 20th, asking for any and all communications, reports, or records about the closure of the municipal building and the demonstration. The official response was that they had no records whatsoever. The Courier Post story I mentioned includes a couple photos, and one is of a man wearing the black t-shirt, holding a bullhorn, identified as a MOVE supporter named Ori Ross. I phoned him last year to inquire further about this event and his participation, but did not hear back. A couple weeks after the podcast launches, I see that Ori is putting out statements on behalf of MOVE, so it's clear he's still involved. So I reach out to him again, this time via text, and he responds right away, and with some colorful language and emojis, but not answering my questions. So as not to leave anything up for interpretation or misinterpretation, I will put that up on the Instagram channel. There is another supporter who is there with Ori Ross, who's not photographed for this particular story, but gives a quote, which was, we are here to show support for Alberta, Africa, and the unjustified court decisions that have brought this issue to the forefront. There was never an issue until the government got involved. This move supporter calls me back, confirming they were there that day, and the quote in the newspaper is accurate. But then they tell me something that has not been reported on. You know, everyone who was a sympathizer or supporter would be invited and encouraged to come to something like the demonstration. But it wasn't uncommon for small groups of people to break away from an event like that maybe halfway through and do something that was like more inner circle that the other people don't know about. So on that particular day, we left and it was all white supporters. There were probably four of us who left and went to Ryan's Run in Maple Shade. As you know, this is where John Gilbride lived at the time. I asked this man, did you know John Gilbride? And he says no. 
He tells me that he and the others were sent to Ryan's run to distribute a flyer and sends it to me via text. Typed in all caps, it says, John Gilbride, your neighbor at apartment 304. But did you know this man is a wife beater, child abuser, who physically and mentally abuses his six-year-old son? John Gilbride is also a deadbeat dad who works as a supervisor at U.S. Airways and has been known to make as much as $185,000 a year on his job. Yet this man has never put one dime in child support for his son, ever. What he did was file bankruptcy to get out of child support and all the rest of his financial obligations. John Gilbride in apartment 304 is not what he seems. He's not nice, quiet, or a good person. He's a deceiver and an unscrupulous manipulator who is, right now, trying to set the stage to have his son and the child's mother murdered. Beware of this man in your community. If he's a danger to his own son and wife, you can't assume anything about him. Beware. John Gilbride is like a ticking time bomb that could explode at any moment. Concerned friends of people in Ryan's Run. Who wrote up the flyer to be distributed at John's apartment complex? That I don't think any supporter had anything to do with. That, I believe, came straight from Rhea and Alberta. Certain things like that, especially one that was that um, cruel and that one of us probably would have tried to soften somewhat in writing it. Like, um, in situations like that, it wasn't uncommon for them to just write it and give it to us. And, you know, we would just unquestioningly put it out there. So if they're giving the address and where to go... Does that indicate to you that somebody from the MOVE organization had been at that address before? I would certainly think so. I asked him to tell me what the purpose of the flyer is. To intimidate him, to turn his neighbors against him, to intimidate neighbors, to maybe make the neighbors put pressure on him to either make him feel unsafe at his own house or, you know, to drop the custody case. This flyer was put in all 200 mailboxes at Ryan's Run West, and also in the communal exercise room, the laundry rooms, and the manager's office. The last mailbox to get this flyer was apartment number 304, John Gilbride's apartment. We will never know when or if John ever saw this flyer, because it's been said that Cherry Hill Police, at the municipal building where MOVE supporters were demonstrating, advised John to leave town for the weekend. And using his flight perks from his job at U.S. Air, John did. He went to Las Vegas. Six days later, he was shot dead at Ryan's Run. The man you have been hearing talk, who plastered this flyer about John all over Ryan's Run, is 38-year-old Kevin Price, the 20-year MOVE supporter introduced at the very beginning of this podcast in the teaser, Leaving MOVE. I'm going to replay the audio of Kevin talking about hearing my first voicemail. And I just stopped, like completely stood still, listened to it. And it was weird how much I was like, yeah, it's about time. It took him less than 15 minutes to return my call. Since my daughter was born, urgency I had to deal with this just became so intensified. And the fact that that timing coincides with you doing this podcast is just, it's an interesting synchronicity of events. The Ryan's Run Flyer, Kevin distributed six days before John's murder, has been haunting him. When I became 
became a father, that recontextualized all of this again. And the, the feelings that I had about John's murder were just intensified tenfold. And I felt like I could understand his struggles so much more than I ever had because the feeling of protectiveness that I have for my daughter is like nothing I've ever felt. When she was a month old or so, and sometimes when she would have a hard time falling down for a nap and my wife needed a break, I would put her in the car seat with the because like so many babies driving in the car would put her to sleep and then I could bring her back home, take her out of the car seat, and then she could take a nap if she was having a hard time falling asleep. And when I was doing that, actually the first time I did it, I accidentally ended up in Ryan's run. Like, I mean, I say accidentally, it wasn't a conscious choice. I was like driving just to try and get my daughter to fall asleep. And I pulled in and it just hit me with so much weight. And I did that a lot on those early drives when my daughter was only a couple months old. Eventually, my wife, when I told her about it, she was like, please don't do that with her in the car. That feels kind of dark or something. But it didn't feel that way for me. I just felt like I was trying to reconcile all of those things. So I kind of accidentally found myself parked in the last year quite a few times, like sitting near the parking spot where from the photos I can best guess John was parked when he was murdered and praying a rosary on his behalf. For the last year, Kevin has been an invaluable source and resource to this podcast especially when it comes to the activities and the specific move supporters who participated in what could easily be defined as a campaign of harassment, slander, and intimidation for a period of four years that all started on the day that John Gilbride left move. Usually the fights were dirty and something that they did, but they didn't pull supporters into. It would just be the members dealing with it. With John, they pulled all of us in. Or call John's work to get him fired from his job at the airlines. I'd never seen anything like what they did with John Gilbride. That one was on a whole other level. They even had me and another uh, move member go out and kind of do surveillance. For the entire organization, we, there were daily meetings. Daily? Every single day. Daily. Daily. Every day. For how long? For those four years? It's war. It's war. You will hear more about the campaign against John Gilbride in upcoming episodes. I want to end this episode bringing you an update from someone else who left MOVE like John Gilbride did 23 years ago. We first introduced you to her as Pixie Africa in the July 2nd teaser, Last Name Africa. That whole feeling of just feeling so alone in the world for so long and literally just feeling like it's me and my kids, like no one else I can truly trust. To be able to talk to someone honestly and like know that I can trust you with my safety. For the first time publicly, Pixie shared her overall experience growing up in MOVE. I felt like I was just born to be tortured. MOVE is a lie. Like, it's not real. It's not what it really seems to lead and talk against Move's founder that is punishable by being cycled, which is being killed. Pixie escaped Philadelphia with her five children on July 2nd, 2021, the same day the podcast teaser launched with her audio. That wasn't a coincidence. Pixie's escape created quite a stir inside the Move cult and amongst people who had been supporting Move up to that point. Pixie has made it to a safe, undisclosed location, and she wanted to give an update for us to share. What has been the the two hardest things of leaving MOVE? Oh, definitely 
breaking away from the brainwashing, they put something inside of us that helped us keep ourselves in check. You know, you don't think this way or you're going to get a violation or your kids are going to die or you're a system person. Getting away from that mindset and realizing like this was a lie. The other hardest thing was driving away. I literally felt like I was going to die. I mean, there was probably like a stretch that was like a half an hour that I couldn't even feel the whole left side of my body. I kept calm. And the only way I knew I was pushing on the gas was because I could see the, you know, me going faster or slower. I couldn't feel my body. I felt like I was having a stroke or something. And I just kept thinking to myself, like, please just let me get my kids away. If this has to happen, I'll definitely die getting them away, but I just need to get them to safety first. And I felt like there was this force that I couldn't see, like pulling me from my inside, just holding on to me and holding on for dear life, like not letting me go. And I'm driving and driving and pulling away from it, but it literally felt like I was going to die. What's been the best part of being on your own? My relationship with my kids. And with myself, actually getting away and them feeling completely, completely, uh, you know, comfortable to talk to me. And it was hard because it was some part of it is them telling me things that I didn't even know about that Rhea and Bert were saying to them. The result in our relationship has been the best thing. The result in the relationship, you know, with my dad, my sister, my husband, the true connections that I am building with people now and the true connections that I have with myself is the best part. She left behind her home, her friends, her family, and even the name Pixie. And it's because of what she says it represents. To me, it represents pain and trauma. It represents someone that tried so hard to hold it together and to get out of this, but was not able to. It represents that time of being abused and not able to stop it. I felt stuck. I was in a cage. And to break free of that cage, I became June, becoming myself. And I wasn't, you know, going to let anything hold me back. No matter how hard it was, I was going to keep pushing. And out of that, I was reborn. I'm not going to say I'm not scared anymore, but I'm not letting that hold me back. And I'm not letting any of it hold me back anymore. So I'm just June, not fixing. I recorded 12 hours worth of interviews with June about her life in Move and what she knows about John Gilbride. So you'll be hearing a lot more from her in upcoming episodes. Public reporting done by intrepid Philadelphia journalists has been crucial to this podcast investigation of Move. So in closing, I want to give credit where credit is due. Three reporters for the Philadelphia Daily News story from 2002, Nicole Weissensee Egan, Ramona Smith, and William Bunch. I also want to credit reporter Tom Lounsbury and photographer Avi Steinhardt for the Courier Post article. Be sure to check out our website, murderatryansrun.com and Instagram for visual references for this episode and more. If you like this investigative series, we would appreciate it very much if you would follow us, 
Give us some stars, a nice review, and then share it. For bonus content and updates, please be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. John Gilbride's murder is still unsolved. So if you have any information, please reach out to us, murder at ryansrun at gmail.com. Also, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please reach out, send us an email, or even send us an audio message on Instagram. Thanks for listening. The producers wish to stress that all individuals referenced in this podcast series are presumed innocent unless or until they are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law in the United States of America.